they're Shakespeare's most famously dysfunctional family, and, as you may have noticed, they have one key piece missing. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. In the world of what you might call Shakespeare-adjacent art, it's not uncommon to find a character who is mostly hidden. I'm thinking of Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet or Ophelia by Lisa Klein. But what first-time novelist J.R. Thorpe has done with her new book is to take that idea one step further. The novel is called Learwife, and it takes place entirely inside the mind of the woman who was mother to Regan, Goneril, and Cordelia, the wife of King Lear, a queen named Berta. As the novel begins, word of her family's death has just come to the abbey where she spent 15 years in exile, largely alone with her thoughts. Through her musing and memories and J.R. Thorpe's beautiful lyrical prose, we get new and completely plausible backstories for some of the most well-known characters in literature. Learwife was just published in the U.S., and J.R. Thorpe joined us from a studio in Cork, Ireland to talk about it. We call this podcast All Her Mother's Pains and Benefits. J.R. Thorpe is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Full disclosure, uh, until I read your book, I watched Lear, I don't know how many times, and I read it, of course, but I just accepted unquestioningly that there's no mother in this screwed-up family, and now I'm really annoyed with myself. Was there an aha moment for you when you asked, you know, where the heck is this queen? Well, it's funny that you ask, because I've been trying to pinpoint one moment where I realized she wasn't there, and I think it was just sort of a gradual realization. I got to a certain point in about 2015 where I started to get curious about, okay, maybe there is a possibility for a story here, but surely she must be referenced somewhere in the play. And I went back and found two vague, oblique references. Leah talking about, I believe it's when he's talking about the serpent's teeth and thankless children. And he tells one of his daughters, you know, I knew that you would understand me, basically. And if you hadn't, I would have gone to my wife's tomb and declared her an adulteress. Um, The other is a very light throwaway joke that The Fool produces at one point about mothers. So that's really where those were the two references I found and I built this entire edifice off that. (laughs) Well, so did the idea for the book then come out of this desire to unearth this hidden history and narrative, and which is something of a trend right now? Or did you first start thinking about family, really, or, or grief, and, and arrive at the book? It was really about family. So um, one of the adaptations I saw in high school was uh, the 1998 uh, Richard Eyre production with Ian Holm as Leah, which is very heavily focused on the, the family dynamic. But there was also, and I promise this is true, when I was about 11 or 12, I read an Agatha Christie story. Like a lot of Agatha Christie stories, it features a lot of very damaging, toxic family dynamics, people, you know, not understanding each other in, you know, peculiarly British ways where no one ever talks about their feelings. But one of the characters, who is a young woman who has a very fraught relationship with her family, says this sort of throwaway line, I always wondered why Reagan and Goneril were like that, 
it must have been so difficult for them, where they had to prove their love all the time. For me, that was the sort of the clicking point that I went back to when I first started thinking about the novel. These characters in Shakespeare's play, obviously, they're fully formed by the time they arrive on the stage. But I wanted to go back to how a family dynamic could create these characters, could create Reagan and Goneril and Leah and how they interact with one another because that is a very entrenched dynamic by the time by the when that first scene turns up they all know the roles they are meant to play and of course the big tragedy is set off by the fact that Cordelia decides she's not going to play anymore. That it makes so much sense because that's really the joy in one of the joys in reading your book is that it gives psychological depth and backstory to these characters that are, as you say, so fully formed, but also so overshadowed by Lear. Mm -hmm. So to do this, how do you approach it? Did you sit down and reread the play a million times or watch a lot of productions? A uh, bit of both, actually. I've been very lucky in my life to have seen... I saw Ian McKellen as Leah. I waited outside the the Globe Theatre at six in the morning for student tickets uh, back in 2007. That was just this incendiary performance. But it also, they featured very, very strong... Uh, Romola Garai was Cordelia, I remember, and they very deliberately, I think, picked women who had equal charisma on that stage. And so it was very much a battle... Yeah, I, I read the play backwards and forwards. I, you know, I watched Ran, the famous Kurosawa play. I've watched a lot of adaptations. Also looking for, has someone done this before? Because to me, it seemed like I've noticed this gap. Someone else has done this. Um, and the only thing I could find was a W.S. Merwin poem, which was published, I think, in The New Yorker, which was basically from the perspective of Leah's wife saying, well, if anyone had asked me, I would have told you how it would go. It's a very short poem, but it's a very brilliant take on the whole situation. Wow. Um, I, this raises so many questions for me. And one of them is the setting that you chose. And thinking of the play, actually, it's the play is set in, in an ancient pre-Christian Britain, or at least how Shakespeare imagined that time. How did you think about the time period for your story? Well, initially, it was very kind of amorphous. Um, I started focusing on the dynamics first and thought, okay, well, I'll flesh out setting as I go along. And it became very clear to me that what I wanted was having Leah's wife somewhere that she'd, she'd been exiled somewhere. But actually, the determining factor for where the book is actually set is biographies of Eleanor of Aquitaine. Because I went back basically to what was it like to be a powerful woman in the early medieval period? What would that have looked like? What would it have felt like? Why would, how would people have talked to these people? And I, the life of Eleanor of Aquitaine and other very, very powerful medieval queens shaped, okay, this is a point in time where this story could viably, you know, this could be fleshed out, this could be understandable. And also there's a line in the book, a kind of a theme that I've put through of the conflict between emerging Christianity and paganism, because Lear is very famous for drawing on every god that he can think of. When he is blaspheming, when, he, when he's furious, he will invoke anyone that comes to mind. Hecate, anyone. When he's raging against them. Yeah. yeah. All the gods have betrayed him. And I thought it would be really interesting to kind of pit that instinct for polytheism, that pagan background, against maybe a wife who was coming 
from a Christian point of view? What would that mean? What would that do for the relationship? How would that... Because that was, you know, also a thing that happened quite a lot in history. It was multi-faith couples who were kind of married together in, in the idea of producing conversion or allying states. So those were the sort of determining factors. And, of course, Eleanor of Aquitaine famously exiled to an abbey. And that was what I was trying to create, this queen who is so intensely charismatic that even in exile for 15 years in an abbey in the middle of nowhere, she is still the centre of that world. And did the language that you use or give her follow from that? Because Berthe, we should say that's her, her name in your book, this, this queen, uh, she doesn't really sound like a Shakespeare character to my ear. She, she sounds, again, more ancient than that. Yeah, that was sort of a deliberate choice. I, a lot of the, a lot of the risk I think of writing from a kind of Shakespearean, a more explicitly Shakespearean linguistic perspective, is you can sound like pastiche because obviously, and particularly with Lear, so many of the lines are so famous, um, and so I chose to kind of make her a lot like give her a very defined register that wasn't Shakespearean, that was more medieval, more kind of lyrical, but definitely referenced elements of the play. There's little references all the way through. So at the beginning of the process, anyway, you're steeped in the play and the language, and you have this idea of a, a different words that you wanted to put into your protagonist's mouth. And you start your story with the ending of Lear, that mm -hmm. he's dead and the three daughters are dead, and the queen finds out the bare-bones facts of this in the abbey, where she's been exiled for 15 years. So it's this huge shock and inconceivable grief. But she is such a force, even in exile and, and in the midst of all this. Maybe, maybe this is a good time for you to read uh, this passage that begins, uh, Lear, you old ghoul, so we can get a sense of her and her voice. Okay. Lear, you old ghoul, softening down in the soil, sprouting a mushroom from your eye. Listen. You tried to do me wrong, you thought you'd bury me. After all I gave. And look how I took your punishment and made it thicken, made it bud down to the root with new growth, furred and greening. This abbey, fifteen years, and through the thin body of the abbess I spoke and formed it, and from my word came plenitude, benison. Look, stupid boy, what I wrought, as I once did for you. This place hoards me like a relic, like the cross flowing with sap. Richness that is a wise and well-born woman, they recognised it. The abbess was sensible. They see what you did not. I am not a vengeful woman, but if you lived and knew my thoughts, Lear, you would cry out in the night and feel fear close around your neck. What did you base this idea of her on? I think I just looked back at what I imagine total devastation, total emotional devastation would be to someone who nevertheless wants to retain her power, who nevertheless remains this, in, this intense force and who also has been denied closure in any way. She's been in the Abbey for 15 years. She doesn't know why. All of the people that she loved have now gone. And she won't get the chance for forgiveness, for understanding, for any future interactions with them. All of that possible future has been taken from her as well. 
And in that sort of nothingness, I wondered what a really, a, someone really used to power and having their own way, what they would do. And that's what I came up with. Fury and calculation and attempts to claw for hope in any way possible, political scheming. And, you know, the whole book is kind of a journey through how she navigates her grief and what she realises about her past and also, crucially, what she does not realise about her past. Yeah, and she she's having this long interior struggle and monologue with herself. And she she's such a powerful character and she has no power and she's had no power mm. for so long and now has no power in this situation, all of which also applies to, to grief. Mm. Um, you have no power against death. And you mentioned nothingness. We'll, we'll pick up on the nothingness and nothing theme in, in Lear and in your book a little later. But that what you're describing, this long interior struggle, is such a hard thing to sustain throughout a novel. So how did you think about building tension and incorporating action into a story of grief and pain? This was something that was structurally a constant process. So the book was written out of order with the two threads, the thread of continuing action and the memory thread separate. And then I spliced them together into this kind of mosaic of, okay, what is happening in her world right now that might set her off onto this particular memory? The idea that she's living, in a sense, in two timelines at once. She's existing in the Abbey, causing complete chaos, but also there is this other, her memories are so strong that in essence she's living them at the same time. That structural deliberation went on for a very long time. Lots of things got shoveled, shoveled, shuffled around, not shuffled. And, you know, things were taken out, things were put back in to create the sense of forward movement, even as we were pushing further and further back. I'm one of those people who doesn't mind a lot of narrative stillness. As long as lots is happening emotionally, you know, lots is, or something is being revealed internally, or, you know, stories are appearing. The choice I made was to hook things together in that way. Wow. Did you have a model for this? There are quite a lot of really good uh, models for memory-based novels, I suppose. Um, Marilyn Robinson was one of the one of the really big ones, you know, with Lila and Gilead, and, mm-hmm. you know, very based on both what is happening now and how it echoes constantly back into the past and how that's a very seamless process, particularly for people who are grieving or troubled or experiencing massive change. Yeah, Michael Ondaatje is also a model for the, you know, in The English Patient, notoriously, there's that wonderful mosaic-like feel of pieces coming together from the past and from the present in a way that feels very natural because that is how people think and feel. They aren't constantly in a present time without acknowledging the other things that have affected them. Um, It was an interesting process, and I haven't learned from it at all. I'm writing my second book in exactly the same way. So, (laughs) I was just going to ask you. Um, Well, the the whole exercise does give you this opportunity, as we were saying earlier, to flesh out the backstory of Berthe's children and Lear through her eyes. And maybe this would be another good time for you to read uh, one of those passages where she's reminiscing about her daughters. And we should say she didn't see Cordelia grow up because in the book she was banished uh, right after giving birth to her. 
And this passage I'm thinking of is, it starts with Reagan, white as paint. Reagan, white as paint, with coarse black hair. My own, so I taught her taming, the lines of it on her back, night wetting to smooth its wilderness. Every morning she rose and unbound her hair, wash of dark over her shoulder, and I would think God helps the man who sees it. Heron girl, full in the breasts, long and smooth with edgeless eyes, small-featured like my mother, pass a hand over her face and the lips, the cheeks, would barely rise under your fingers. Perhaps Cordelia was like this when she grew. That whiteness, that pale clay. When I slapped Reagan once on the neck, some small disobedience, she had arranged my pale combs in her own plaits, the mark rose and would not fade. High scarlet, like a bite. She wore low bodices to display it, flagrant, turning to the light at dinners. I ignored her, gave her pounded hazel for the burn. Later, Goneril told me, whispering. Always in my memory she is whispering, smothered, a giggle in the dark, that she had rubbed and pinched it every night to keep it virulent. Twisting her wound, bending to the glass to check its swell. So industrious in her spite. I remember other things. You start searching for portents after disaster. You sift through old tragedies to see what they begat. A poor foundation stone that cracked the building down. There is so much packed in here about these girls and what kind of mother the queen was. Mm. She, she's a slapper. Uh, Goneril is a whisperer and a tattletale. And, and Reagan manipulative and vindictive. I love that twisting her wound. What was the inspiration for the backstory for the daughters? I think the real foundation of it was that competition for love in that first scene and how obvious it was that they'd all done it before. And I thought, well, what would it mean if they had done that their whole lives and not only just competing for their father's love but for their mother's love? What if they were pawns in this power struggle between a mother and father who are always fighting for supremacy? Would that have made them what? how they became. And I thought that seems like a very logical through line. Being raised in that sort of, you know, morass of intense psychological game playing creates the sense that you yourself are a game player. You always have to play your part or suffer the consequences. And be strategic. Mm-hmm. Very strategic. The queen is very strategic. And that makes a lot of sense that Cordelia would be different from her sisters because... She was the youngest, but also she wasn't brought up by this very tough mother, and she wasn't competing for that mother's love. And I'm thinking also that the queen's process in all this is so true to grief, too, that you that you sift through these, as she says, old tragedies, searching for portents. How do you know so much about grieving? I mean, I wish I could say that I had some incredibly traumatic backstory but unfortunately, I don't. I'm just a, I'm just a very um, morbidly imaginative person, I think. I mean, we've all gone through griefs for various things. I mean, particularly the past 18 months have all taught us a lot about grieving for lives and for you know, possibilities that we weren't able to have. But I've also always been drawn to literature that evokes particular very strong emotions, and grief is one of them. And part of my... PhD was actually about elegy 
saying goodbye to people and what that was as a poetic form. So it's always something I've been kind of drawn to. Ha, huh, and going back over the past with picking through it mm-hmm. in that stillness. You know, you also really give us a sense of Lear as a younger man, which is fascinating. Aside from the hints in the play, who was your model for this young king? A lot of it comes from, you know, hints that are kind of given by really huge performances given by, you know, these big personalities. Um, But it also goes back to um, Eleanor of Aquitaine and her very famously energetic and boisterous and loud and interesting second husband, Henry. I read about him and went, well, that's really interesting as a potential model. Someone who clearly has a lot of potential as a king, as a leader, who has that natural charisma, but hasn't quite yet been moulded. And then the queen can come along and she can be a very big part of that moulding. And a lot of the memories that Berthe goes over, they're about that, in which she she's schooling Lear in mm-hmm. Kingcraft, because she's older than he is and she's been married before. Mm-hmm. Or at least she remembers all that, that she was schooling him. She remembers it that way. And that's always the the key bit that it's very much based around her perspective on her past. Right, which is fine because we didn't get it before. <laughs> um, and, her perspective. And, and crucially, there's no one else there around her to correct her or tell her that anything was different because, you know, she's alone in her own head and she has been really for, for 15 years. Yeah. They seem really well matched, though, in, in her memories. And he has his own ideas about things. And you give a great window into one of another one of those big mysteries in, in King Lear, why he sets up the crazy succession scheme with his daughters in the first place. Um, could you read this passage? It's uh, about why Lear didn't want to divide his kingdom. Mm-hmm. Lear was in his furs, holding his throat. All his life he would have eyelashes that drooped to his cheekbones, petal curled. Do you know what they eat in monasteries on fish days, Queen? No, King. I had come to his arm. We were close at that time. The Archbishop told me. The babes pulled from a used stomach. Tiny lambs. He showed me the size between two fingers. Barely the width of a child's fist. Apparently their eyes are like small fruits. I would like to taste them one day. I will ask the kitchen. He had my arm. We were arranging our robes to process. You see, don't you, he said. Taking the lambs from the belly, killing the ewe. It's waste. To divide a country poorly produces waste. His hands tracing the air as if a long skin. I do not know how to do it well. Yes, King. May it never come to that. I must have looked ghostly as he kissed my forehead. Oh, wonderful reading. Tell me about writing this conversation. I thought quite a lot about what, you know, what, where that famous first scene came from and what it meant for the women in his life. And it comes back to also the famous exchange later on, I gave you all, and in good time you gave it. Uh, one of the daughters back to him. And I realised that Shakespeare had sort of set up the situation where he had been withholding this, basically, dowries and gifts and everything from his daughters all this time. And I wondered why. And I went, well, he doesn't have a son. And he is making decisions based on possibly on the idea that he might have a future heir one day 
or he's been using this to control them as a way to keep them close. So it's this this very interesting kind of political problem of who gets what when a king passes away, particularly if there isn't a natural person to give it to. The question of who gets what and how things are divided should be present very early in the, on in the book as well, because it's this it's the starting point for everything when the play begins. This idea of finally the king's promises are coming to pass and then everything goes horribly wrong. Why the tiny lambs in in the ewes' stomach? I mean, that's it there's an ickiness to this story that works really well. I'm not even sure why. The the lambs, that's a true thing. That was an actual true thing. Um, and I found it in, I think it was a, a book of medieval history. I researched the period quite closely and went, God, that's a good symbol for the wastefulness of the entire debacle. But also it is, if you think about it, the familial relationship of how much do you love me and I'll give you land, it is quite gross. It's meant to evoke this kind of feeling of weird disgust in us. And so I connected that to bring that that feeling of watching that scene and going, oh, I don't like this and I don't understand precisely why, but there is something about this that is very disturbing. That's good. I like that because it is very disturbing, the idea of controlling your children with money. Mm-hmm. It also, that was a very rational story, but it somehow, in my mind, evoked the whole theme of, in some ways, mental illness and how it runs throughout this family or that it's an ever-present backdrop to the play and to your story. You you write about Lear's father wandering the corn, believing himself a bird, and you invoke Lear's madness, and also hint that Berta herself might be mentally ill. I mm. mean, who wouldn't being banished and ripped from her child and stuck in an abbey for 15 years? Uh, this is a, a story of a the, the, the madwoman in the attic in some ways. Uh, and she assumes at times that she is mad. How did you think about the connections between madness and the family dynamic while you were writing? The really interesting point f- for that for me was going back to Geoffrey of Monmouth's source text, which is what Shakespeare originally referred to. It's his his chronicles in which the idea of King Lear with his three daughters that's where it emerges from. I originally went back to look at it going, well, maybe there's a wife in here. There isn't. But it also traced Leah's legacy and his descendants from Bloodwood the Mad. And it's very evocative of what that madness looked like. And that kind of gave a context to Leah's constant worries throughout the play. It's not coming from nowhere. It's coming from this idea of possible inheritance. But I was also, I was very careful to, it's very easy to go, oh, a character is mad and, and make things very irrational very quickly in ways that aren't, are very melodramatic. Whereas I think Lear itself as a play is very sensitive about what mental illness can look like, what it can feel like, where it comes from, what sets it off. You know, this huge trauma basically sends Lear reeling out into a storm and yes, it's a trauma of his own making, but that doesn't stop it basically loosening him from his logical foundations and having everyone around him, including the fool who is meant to be the person who kind of occupies that liminal space between, you know, mad and not mad, 
be the ones trying to anchor him back to Earth. So that was, I, I was doing it very carefully, I think is my answer to your question. Yes, and that shows. I mean, in the original, Lear's father was the man who created wings for himself. And I'm glad you mentioned The Fool because, you know, such a fascinating character, of course. And in your telling, Berta gave The Fool to Lear when they were married. Why don't you read this passage uh, that begins, I miss him nearly as much as I do Kent. I miss him nearly as much as I do Kent, or Lear bearing his wit like a lance to prick the bloated balls of every pompous ass. He feared nothing, our fool. Bow-legged, his hair hard scraped back against a broken vein scalp to fit his full cap. He'd have been a scholar if he were not so intelligent, bright enough to see behind the backs of things and through all opaque and golden objects. There was nothing left for him, he told me once, but to be a fool, no other job. And a king's fool sees all, knows all, embraces and reverses. When I gave him to Lear, newly married, I knew barely what it was I did. But I had given Lear an underside, a nonsense man, who appeared in the glass and said, Lo, all is mortal, none of this is real. I cannot think of him living past Lear. The idea makes my tongue taut against my teeth. Kings and fools are hard companions. They live in the high absurd and look down on us, grimacing. There was no fool beyond the king. His land was Lear, everlasting. He served him as long as my marriage. Longer. I love that line. Kings and fools are hard companions. They live in the high absurd and look down on us, grimacing. How how does the fool figure into your story of this grieving queen? The fool was, in many ways, her first friend, along with Kent, in the way that I, I formatted things and also figures as a kind of mentor figure. The fool for her is the person who begins to kind of teach her the power of the absurd, the power of being close to people and showing them, you know, the power of double-sided words and nonsense, I suppose. And the fool throughout, also in the relationship that I've created, sees things that she can't see about Lear, about her relationship with her children, and tries very hard to make her see them, and she just isn't capable. It's interesting that he's, yes, he is everyone's teacher, and yet he has no power, really no voice. And that brings us back to to this word nothing, which is so central in King Lear, of course, and you invoke it throughout the book. And in, in a way, since it's so much about this woman who's lost everything and can't get out of a cloister and only really has her thoughts... I guess you could say that nothing much happens in your book, yet it's so full of meaning. So at what point did the concept of nothing become something of a main theme for you? I think nothingness was a starting point, really, because it's Cordelia's invocation of nothing that starts everything going in the play as well. You know, this this idea of, no, there, there is a boundary I will not cross. No, this is a game I refuse to play. Equally, the novel starts with this nothing. The family is dead. Kent is possibly dead as far as she knows. All of her connections to the person that she was, the power that she held, have gone. And she must survive and rebuild in any way that she can, that she can, really. It's interesting because nothingness isn't the same necessarily as stillness. Like, it's a novel where 
I very clearly prioritised women in small spaces struggling against one another and her life story and the breadth of her memories. And so I've somehow snuck quite a lot of plot into a book that doesn't seem to go anywhere or do anything. You know. That's true. I didn't mean to criticize your your book. There absolutely nothingness kind of engenders everything. There, there's a plague which uh, kills the abbess, and then there, then there's a competition between and the queen is the arbiter for who who's going to take over the abbey. So that really ratchets up the tension too. Hmm. It's it's one of those things where the plot isn't necessarily the focus. It keeps things. It's very much. Again, this sense of her living in two parallel times where both are her attempt to actively cope with this nothingness. How is she going to survive it? How is it going to affect the people around her? And that's the other thing about both the play and the novel is it's very much about how this nothing resounds through and causes chaos and things that perhaps were not initially intended but then escalate and escalate so going back to King Lear, after writing the book, did you return and read the play or, or watch any more productions or have different perspectives on it? Well, I finished editing like at the beginning of the plague year, <laughs> I suppose is what we're going to call it. And of course, there was all this talk about, oh, Shakespeare wrote King Lear in a plague time. No one has any excuse for being unproductive. Um, and so I couldn't. Oh, I got so tired of that. I go couldn't ahead, get away ahead. from it. It was very annoying. <laughs> well, this is the thing. I didn't mean to write a topical novel. It's not my fault. I'm not a witch. <laughs> Please leave me alone. But it's one of those things where going back to Leah will. I think I'll need some space before I can go back and look at it without just constantly seeing my own interpretations just washing over the screen because it's a play that very much deserves to be seen on its own. And my head is still, I only finished the final, final, final copy edits two days ago. Um, so it will always, for me, have that place as a piece of art I know I can always go back to and get something from. And y Yes. And going back to your idea of nothingness and nothing as a theme, your idea of nothingness is so deeply personal to this queen and to your story. Uh, it's so different from the play. Not that it's not personal to Lear, but it has a, a cosmic, a, a different connotation entirely in my mind. Mm. Well, it was kind of a reframing of, because the, the, one of the excellent things about Lear as a play is that it can be staged as a political drama or as we could go a thousand acres and make it into this very familial, a purely familial drama. And I, because I was writing very much from the kind of familial perspective the nothingness very much became an emotive nothing, you know, a nothing of the heart, a nothing of, of self. Part of the reason I, um, I've written her memories as so important is that it's also she's trying to remember who she is without her family, even though if they haven't been physically present in her life in the novel for 15 years. She's been a queen, she's been a mother. These things have defined her in relation and suddenly those relations have gone and she is drawing on every part of herself to remember what she is without them physically there in the world. I, I think that's a, a hard place to end, but a good place. <laughs> and I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. 
Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you too. J.R. Thorpe is a librettist and writer working across a variety of forms, primarily with composers, choirs, orchestras, and musical organizations. Her first novel is called Learwife. It was published in the U.S. by Pegasus Books in December 2021. She was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, All Her Mother's Pains and Benefits, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer, with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Evan Marquardt at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Duncan O'Clarig at Blackwater Studios in Cork, Ireland. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find out more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.